Every year, I, um, I have this practice of going on solitary retreat. And I've been doing this for about 20 years, actually. Um, yeah, trying to make sure every year I, I make time to go off on solitary retreat, if possible for a month, but at least a couple of weeks, something like that. And the idea of going on solitary retreat is to live simply, to meditate, to go for walks, maybe read a book, and just well, also just have lots of time just to sit with a cup of tea and, and look out the window and just be. And um, yeah, it's it's like going it's like any retreat. It's a it's a way of just stepping back from one's life and kind of gaining perspective on on, one, on one's life and yeah, recharging one's batteries, recharging one's inspiration and spiritual batteries, as it were. But I suppose particularly on a solitary retreat, well, it's solitary. You're, you're on your own, so. Um, has that particular ingredient of being by oneself and experiencing oneself in a particular way and being thrown back on oneself and one's own thoughts and feelings in a particular way. And I think I can say that going on solitary retreat is a very, very important part of my life. Uh, I think I can say that some of my happiest memories, some of the highlights of my life have been times when I've been on those solitaries. And you might think them from what I've said that going on solitary is a very inward-looking thing. It's about it's very introspective. It's about retreating inwards, as it were. And it definitely has that dimension. But what I've realised is that just as important as that, maybe even more important, uh, part of the experience of being on those retreats is it's also about kind of turning out to the world. It's just as much about turning out to the world as it is turning in and I think it's becoming more like that the more of these retreats I do the more I experience the experience for me is about coming into a different relationship with the world turning out to the beauty of the world around me and I've been on some solitaries in very very beautiful places Um, so for example I once spent a month on a little in a little wooden shack on a beach in northwest Scotland, right up in the, in the top of northwest Scotland, and it was very simple. You know, there was you know I got water out of a stream. There was no electricity or anything like that. And um, but the whole time I was there, this whole month, only one person ever came down on the beach. The rest of the time, I, I had the place completely to myself. It's very very beautiful, magical place. And I was there in June, so of course that meant it hardly ever got dark. You know, I just I would just watch the sun slanting down towards the horizon, and about midnight it would just kind of skim under the horizon for a couple of hours, and then two o'clock it would start coming up again, and you know the, the whole sky would be full of this golden light, very very beautiful. Another time I, I did a, a solitary in a place called Wayne Gap Cottage, which is on the edge of the Lake District, and so that was just being in rugged hilly farming country with in the distance these snow-capped mountains of the Lake District. And more recently I, I, did a, I, I spent some time at a place called Truin and that's an old ferryman's cottage on the Welsh coast on, on the mouth of an estuary in northwest Wales. Once upon a time a ferryman lived there apparently and took people backwards and forwards uh, and again it was a beautiful magical place because when the tide was out you know, what one sh- one could just see the sea in the far distance on the horizon, 
but twice a day the, 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 the water would just come up and then you'd be living with water all around you, just complete transformation going on all the time. So I love being in these places and um, I just, yes, for me part of the experience of being there is tuning into those places, the plants, the animals, the atmospheres and all the rest of it. And um, I remember one, one experience I had at Wayne Gap Cottage was I, there was a, a railway line about two miles that way to the east. And I remember sort of part of my t- way for part, part of the way of my time there, I sort of realized that if I he- heard the train in the distance, that meant the wind was coming from the east and that meant certain weather. And if I didn't hear the train, it meant the weather was coming from the, the other way and that would mean different weather. And there was something really interesting about that experience because I hadn't worked it out for myself. It was just, it, I just kind of intuited it. I just, um, I just tuned into the place. Somehow by being there, I'd kind of tuned into that and, and I realised that I knew that's what hearing the train meant or not hearing the train meant. And when I noticed that, I, there was something about it that I really loved. I just, that just felt right. It just, I just thought... That's how I want to be. I want to. That's how I want to live my life. Somehow, that I feel connected to places, kind of connected to what's going on in that kind of way. And then sometimes, when I'm on these solitary retreats, just more occasionally, I have another kind of experience. A kind of magic happens, and um, well, how it feels is that one momentarily enters into another realm, or just for a while one's on the edge of another world, one's on a kind of threshold between the worlds as it were and a kind of meeting happens. So I want to relate a couple of times this has happened to me. So once was um, I was coming down a Welsh mountain, it was ha- about halfway down and um, I saw something kind of moving in front of me so I was sort of looking out for it and eventually I came face to face with a fox and we were about 20 yards apart, something like that. And, but we just kind of met each other <laughs> and we just looked at each other. And it went on for quite a while, just us, you know, me looking at the fox and the fox looking at me. And it looked a very old fox. It looked like a real mountain fox, very old and wild and long, wiry hair. And it was intensely alive. Uh, its eyes were wide open. Its ears were really pert. Uh, every, it was like every nerve in its body was on red alert, just kind of looking at me. It was like a fox made of electricity. Uh, and yet at the same time, it just stood there, kind of was quite steady and grounded and just kind of held my gaze, carried on looking at me. And it was only a fox. <laughs> it wasn't a bear or a lion. And yet... I sort of really valued that experience. It felt like a kind of meeting. It felt like a, yes, sort of entering into another realm somehow. And another time at at Wayne Gap Cottage, the place in the Lake District, um, I was just walking up the lane and I saw a bird over here just sort of start and fly off. And so I was sort of interested, so I started looking to see what it was. And then I realised it was flying towards me. And that's interesting. And then it kind of carried on flying towards me. And it was flying very fast. And, and then my mind went, you know, when your mind goes into sort of, everything seems to go into slow motion. 
and you, you sort of notice everything very slowly and you notice every thought as it comes into your mind and passes away. That happened. So I was sort of thinking, well, what is that bird? And then I realised it was a bird of prey. It was a hawk. And it's still flying towards me. And it's flying very fast. And <laughs> then I, you know, I remember having the thought, well, a sparrow wouldn't stand a chance, would it? It was a sparrow hawk. And, um, you know, I just, I just could watch how it pulled its wings back and just, you know, shot through the air so powerfully, so fast. Till eventually it got to here. You know, that the, the hawk was here. I could see its black eyes. We were kind of looking into its eyes. And then at that point, I went, ah! <laughs> and um, stepped back. And the hawk also just suddenly just twisted in the air and bolted over the hedgerow in that direction. And I was just left there. Um, you know, well, I kind of realised what the expression stepping back in amazement meant. Because that's literally what I did. I, I was literally taken aback, walking backwards like this. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And um, but again, it felt like a kind of blessing. It felt like kind of a, a, a meeting somehow. And then more recently, I, I um, well, you know that experience when you come across a poem, which really expresses an experience you've had, much better than you could ever express it yourself. And it also, it, the poem expresses it so well that you sort of realise things about the experience that you never fully had realised yourself. Yeah? Well, I came across a poem like that. So I'd like to read the poem to you, because it really encapsulates something about those experiences for me. And the poem's by Ted Hughes, and um, it's, it's from a book called Moortown Diary, which is poems that he wrote when he had a farm in North Wales. So he had this practice of going out in the day, and if anything, you know, anything happened, he would write a, a poem about it at the end of the day. So one day he went out in the winter, I think either in a car or walking, and he, he came across some deer. And this is the poem he wrote. In the dawn dirty light, in the biggest snow of the year, two blue dark deer stood in the road, alerted. They had happened into my dimension, the moment I was arriving, just there. They planted their two or three years of secret deerhood, clear on my snow-screen vision of the abnormal, and hesitated in the all-way disintegration and stared at me, and so for some lasting seconds. I could think the deer were waiting for me, to remember the password and sign. That the curtain had blown aside for a moment, and there where the trees were no longer trees, nor the road a road. The deer had come for me. Then they ducked through the hedge, and upright they rode their legs, away downhill over a snow-lonely field, towards tree dark. Finally, seeming to eddy and glide and fly away up into the boil of big flakes. The snow took them, and soon their nearby hoofprints as well, revising its dawn inspiration back to the ordinary. So it's a wonderful poem, and yes, I can, I can just really relate to that, that idea that you could think the deer were waiting for you to remember the password and the sign, and the curtain blowing
everything aside for a moment and then they're suddenly gone and we're just back to the ordinary. So uh, yes, I've found those experiences quite special somehow and I've spent time thinking about why that is, why, why, why do they seem significant experiences. And I, I suppose what I've realised is that part of what happens in those places, those magical places that one goes to, and part of what happens in those encounters is that you meet something non-human. You meet a different kind of psychic energy. You meet a different sense of presence. So yes, that was the experience of the, you know, the fox and I just looking at each other intensely, <coughs> staring at each other, kind of wondering about each other looking at each other from our different worlds, as it were. And if I'm honest about that experience of watching the fox, uh, yeah, if I'm honest about what I felt, actually I felt afraid. That's what I felt. I felt an element of fear. And, you know, rationally I knew that the fox was probably far more wary of me than I was of it. But nevertheless, that was a kind of uh, an aspect of the experience of a kind of fear. And yeah, it's like that poem, maybe some of you know the poem Snake by D.H. Lawrence, uh, where he encounters a snake and he's fascinated by it, but at the same time there's a kind of fear that he feels. He feels the fear of the alien, the unknown and the non-human. And yeah, those kind of experiences throw you back on yourself. You're more aware that you're human. <coughs> you belong to the human world, that you're sort of from another dimension. And there seems to be something yeah, magical and precious about this experience. It feels like a privilege, like a blessing. That's what it feels like. So yes, I, I've kind of realised that being on these retreats, being in nature, it has a very strong effect on me. And it feels right. It feels there, there feels something good about that. It sort of seems to be teaching me something of what life should be about. And there's a, a well-known little quote from a Buddhist Zen teacher called Dogen. Apparently he was once asked, um, what would it be like to be enlightened? And his reply was something like, to be enlightened would be, would be to be intimate with all things. To be enlightened would be to be intimate with all things. Yeah. So in a way it's a bit like kind of get a glimpse of a glimpse of a glimpse of that, of just being in the world with the barriers down, turned out to the world, attuned to the world, opened out and connected to the world in that kind of way. And then at the end of one's retreat, one comes back to the city. And so I just want to tell you about an experience I had coming back from Wayne Gap Cottage. So that was the place where I saw the Sparrowhawk. And I'd, been, I'd actually been there for some months. I was there on sabbatical. So it was a bit of a longer time that I'd been there. But eventually, I, you know, I came back uh, and I was living in the urban environment. And I was walking into town one day in the place where I lived just to do some shopping or something. And um, the place I was walking was quite ugly. There was this rather ugly ring road that had built, been built around the town. There was this, you know, fairly hideous concrete multi-storey car park 
there was a, another kind of ugly council building over here. And, you know, I was walking amongst people who just looked a bit bored and a bit dull and a bit kind of turned in on themselves in that kind of way. And at some point, walking along the road, and I can remember it exactly where it is, I could take you and show you the sort of exact point, I just felt in my heart something did that. Something kind of shut down, some, a kind of barrier came back down again. It was very, very sort of real and tangible experience. And painful. It was painful and regrettable. And a bit shocking. Because what I realised was I was going back. I'd, I was going back into my usual mode of existence. My, my usual way of being. My, my usual mode of being, as it were. So I, I realised I'd had this experience of kind of opening out and being in a, in, a, in a different way, but I couldn't sustain it, and I was just, I was, I was also just kind of closing in on myself and kind of going back to that that way of being. So a retreat, going on retreat, it's not just a temporary relief. It's not just escaping into some nice space for a while. What a retreat should really be about is giving one a sense of possibility giving one a sense of how you can be at your best, how you can be when you're most alive. And you want that sense, you want that kind of glimpse of your potential so that you can learn to be like that more of the time. That You can be more like that more of the time, eventually be like it all of the time, as it were. So I realised that was the practice for me, that something had happened in that experience of being in the beauty of nature but I needed to learn to kind of integrate it into the rest of my life. I, I wanted to learn with that. I wanted to learn to live with that sort of open heart and that kind of turned outness more and more of the time, as it were. And I had an interesting experience again. A couple of weeks later, I was walking into town, and pretty much in the same spot. Do you know what I saw? I saw suddenly shooting over the rooftops a sparrowhawk. <laughs> was lovely. It was quite out of place, you know. It just kind of bolted over the rooftops and away again. So it was like a, again, it was like a kind of message or a sign. So just want, yeah, just want to try and explore a little bit more that ex- what it is that that experience of turning out to the world. Because I'm sure that's, you know, that's something that a lot of people can relate to, to some extent or other. It's, you don't have to be a Buddhist on a solitary retreat to have those kind of experiences, to kind of uh, feel connected and opened out in that kind of way. But uh, yeah, I just want to try and reflect on that a little bit from a more Buddhist point of view. So part of what's going on, I think, is in those experiences of nature is one's having a, an experience of beauty. So I recently read a, an, an ancient Indian definition of beauty as that which is always new, moment to moment. So the beautiful is that which is always new, moment to moment. So in other words, because it's always changing, it's fresh and momentary, it, it transports you, or it helps you to see things in that way as well, that you start seeing the freshness and the momentariness of things. And so there's a kind of an aliveness and a kind of beauty to that. And I think often nature is like this. Nature is always changing. And so it can transport you into seeing things in that kind of way. And I think that's why I love being at Truin, this ferryman's cottage. Because 
I was just there. You know, I, I, I could just sit for hours and hours watching the tide come in. And at first it seemed like nothing would, was happening. And then there'd just be this little kind of snake of water making its way up a particular part of the estuary. It's like it was trying to kind of find the way up, find that easiest way in, as it were. Just slowly, slowly kind of creeping up. And, you'd, you know, an hour later, there'd be a great big lake in front of you. And it did that twice a day, and every time it was different, because every time it was a slightly different time of day. Sometimes it was a high tide or a low tide, depending on the phase of the moon, and it changed according to the wind and the sun and the light and all the rest of it. So it was just so beautiful, so absorbing, so fascinating, and it was always changing in that kind of way. So yes, we can have that experience of that kind of beauty, uh, that's just there. It doesn't have any point. It doesn't have any meaning. It doesn't have any purpose. And that, again, transports us. It just helps us into a different mode of being where we're just, yeah, we're in a kind of non-utilitarian mode of being. We're, we're, well, we're, we're being rather than doing, you could say. Or we're in a state of contentment rather than a state of craving and having to, wanting things and doing things. So yes, in a way, this experience of beauty gives rise to a kind of increased sensitivity. That beauty refines and purifies the emotions. So, so much of the time we're caught up in things. We're caught up in worries and concerns and projects and fantasies and irritations. We're trying to do things. We're trying to get things done. We're trying to get somewhere. But being in a place like that and being transported into that different kind of mode frees all that energy up gradually, gradually. And yeah, one of the effects of that is one starts there's more energy available to one and one starts feeling things more strongly and purely, as it were, and deeply. One's emotions and feelings become stronger and deeper. And uh, but also, yeah, in a way more subtle. They're less diluted, less dispersed. So yeah, there's a there's a there's a there's a kind of sensitivity and strength of feeling that can arise out of this beauty. And then also it can give rise to a sense of empathy. So, yeah, in a way that's just my experience, that you, 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 you're in these places, you tune into them, the kind of beauty draws you out, sort of coaxes you into a different way of being. And part of that is, is a sort of empathy uh, starts to emerge. So there's beauty and, and therefore there's love, there's care, there's appreciation. Uh, there's just that awareness of things as they are in themselves. I remember someone a few years ago talking about their experience of being on solitary, solitary retreat, which I found very moving. It was a guy who used to go into Dartmoor, just go into the middle of Dartmoor and live in a tent, which is probably about the wildest place left in England. And... Um, you know, he would just be there and just feel that same affinity with the land around him. And he said that after a while, if he was walking along a path and he accidentally kicked a stone, he f would stop and pick it up and put it back. Yeah. Which in a way sounds bonkers, <laughs> but uh, I just find it very moving. There's something about that which I find very moving, that he, he just, there was just a kind of care and empathy that he, he didn't want to kind of 
change anything or damage anything in any kind of way. And recently I was on a retreat in Spain, um, not a solitary retreat but with other people, uh, living in a very simple place out of doors, uh, washing facilities out of doors. So you'd have a, you know, you'd fill a bowl of water and you'd wash and then you'd just throw the bowl of water to one side. And that was what I was doing at first, just chucking the water away. But eventually I realised if I, when I was doing that I was throwing it on all sorts of insects, ants and things. And so after a while I just couldn't do that anymore. I just, I just had to sort of find somewhere to kind of carefully pull the water. So there was a kind of, yeah, sort of empathy and care that just gradually emerged in that kind of way. I just became more aware of the impact of my actions, more aware of that everything else around me was also alive. So there was a sort of, yeah, an ethical, other, dim- other regarding dimension starting to unfold in my awareness. And then also, sometimes there's a certain sense of mystery that unfolds out of these experiences. You can start to experience the world as a bit more mysterious and wonderful. So I was talking earlier about these experiences of encountering other animals and I was sort of describing that as it's like being on the borderlands. It's like being on the threshold of another realm, as it were. And yeah, I think part of what's going on in those experiences is it's, it's realising one as a human being and, you have a, and therefore as a human being you have a particular way of experiencing the world. Uh, but you're, you're encountering another animal who has another exp- way of experiencing the world. So yes, if one's a human being, one has particular sense faculties, eyes and ears and so on, and they work with a bit within a particular range. So our ears can hear certain sounds but not other sounds. Our eyes detect certain frequencies of light. And so, yeah, we experience the world via our senses and then you know, processed by the mind in a very human kind of way. So that means we have a very particular experience of the world, conditioned by the equipment we've got and the mind that we've got. But of course there's a very, very strong assumption, you know, incredibly strong assumption, to think, well, that's, that's what the world is. The way the, way the world is the, is the way I see it. That's what's out there, kind of thing. Um, but of course it isn't. Actually, we don't know what's out there. Actually, what, what's out there is rather mysterious, rather unknown. We, we just have a particular take on it, conditioned by the equipment and the, and the mind that we've got. So sometimes, yeah, when you meet these other creatures, you have a sense that they're, you're kind of looking at each other, but you're looking at each other from a different world, as it were. Because you know they've got a different kind of mind and a different kind of uh, makeup in that kind of way. So that fox I met, um, well, yeah, we were looking at each other, but he was also listening. And a fox can hear a very you know, much higher frequency of, of sounds than humans can. And of course, he also would have lived in a, in a whole world of scent and smell. Yeah, he would have been smelling all sorts of things about me and kind of working out all sorts of things about what was going on around through smell. So there was, a, there, was a, there was a whole dimension to his world which was completely unavailable to me. Yeah? That, that it, we, we, were, we were really were sort of looking at each other from other worlds, as it were. There, there was a whole dimension that 
I just can't inhabit. It's, it's not there. It doesn't exist as far as I am concerned, but it, it exists from the other point of view. Recently I was reading about barn owls who hunt at night, you know, virtually in the dark, and they can find mice in the, in the dark. And apparently the way they do this is through hearing. So they've got this incredibly acute system of hearing. And part of the way it works is, well, first of all, they have, you know the way an owl has all those feathers around its face. That's all designed to direct as much sound as possible into the ears. And then the, in, the, in their head, the way the eardrums are placed, so we have one eardrum here and one here, so that we can kind of get some sense of whether a sound is over there or over there. Well, an owl, an, a barn owl has that, but also one eardrum is slightly higher than the other, and one is slightly further back and the other slightly further forward in the head. So that means when an owl detects a sound, it can pinpoint exactly where it's wrong in, in three dimensions. So it's like we've got sort of roughly two-dimensional sound, as it were. But the barn owl, it, it, it just hears in a different way. It just knows exactly where the sound is from to the, to the, uh, to the extent that it can just stop in the midair and crash down and, and get, catch the vole or the mouse or whatever it is. So it, again, there's a whole other dimension, a whole other kind of dimension of, of the world that just isn't available to us, that we can only sort of imagine or dream somehow. So I find all this stuff fascinating because it shows, it kind of gives me a, a kind of glimpse of how the world is only known through our senses and our mind. In a way, the, the world is mind-made. Is, is mind yeah, we're, we're kind of making it up in our minds, as it were. All we know is a particular take on the world, as it were. And it's so strongly counterintuitive. We so strongly assume that this is the world. This is how it is. Um, and in a way, it's understandable that we assume that because it's the only world we know. It's the only world in a way that we can know. But actually, it's not like that. Yeah? In, in a way, the world is, is, is mysterious. In a way, the world is unknown. And we just, we just kind of get a sense of something out there, as it were. But what it really is in itself we don't know, we can't know, we can't possibly know. So, yeah, it's not a case of me in here observing a kind of fixed, objective, separate world out there. The world, you know, what we call the world, is much more of a relationship. It's a kind of mediation. It's, a, it's much more like that. Uh, and, and it's, yeah, it's all rather mysterious, really. So I just wanted to tell you a little bit about a Buddhist practice which, in a different way, explores this sense of relationship and connection and non-separateness with the world. So it's a Buddhist practice called the Six Element Practice, a meditation practice. And yeah, in this meditation you, you contemplate, you reflect on the elements which are earth, water, fire, air, space and consciousness. And they're not elements in the way that we might understand them in... in uh, physical elements of Western chemistry or Western science, they're more like qualities. So it's more like the quality of earth. So something that is solid and fixed and firm. Or the, or the quality of water, something which is fluid and in motion. So, that, so they're more elements in that sense, as in qualities of things. So in this meditation practice, you, 
and just reflect on how the elements are always changing and flowing. So for example, say I'd had an apple for my lunch, I might think about an apple and where an apple came from. So it's solid, it's got form, I hold it in my hand, but it's arisen out of a whole process of different elements. So it grew on a tree, the tree needed sunlight, so there's the fire element of the sun allowing the tree to grow. There was the rain which, you know, the, the sun evaporated up from the oceans and was carried over by the air element and fell again on the tree and allowed the tree to grow. So there's the fire and the, and the water and the air element in this apple. And then there's, well, a way a tree grows is it, it photosynthesizes. So it takes in air, takes in carbon dioxide from the air and energy from the sun and is able to kind of, from that, create you know, branches and leaves and flowers and all the rest of it. Yeah? So there's this magical process going on all the time. In my garden at back home, I've got a buddleia bush, which at the moment is you know, huge and, and full of leaves. And every winter I prune it back, because that's what you're supposed to do apparently with buddleia bushes. So I prune it back, and every year I think, or maybe I've overdone it this year, pruned it a bit hard. But no, every year it just, it just shoots back into life. And all this foliage and, and wood and, and, and organic material just comes in a matter of weeks out of the air. It just arises out of thin air. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And this is going on all the time. Yeah? So that's where that apple came from. And then I crunch up the apple and it turns to water mostly and it becomes part of me and that process of the elements changing carries on. It goes on and on like that. So in this way, yeah, we just reflect on the change and transform transformation of the elements, how we're always borrowing and giving back. So that's an important part of it. We, we just borrow things and then we give them back. So yes, I, I eat. I take in the elements from the world around me, but then I, I give it back. I, I defecate, I shed skin, I have my hair cut. The elements are always being taken in and given back. Yeah? That's what life is. It's this ongoing process of taking and giving, borrowing and returning. That's how life works, just that ongoing process. So we, in, the, in this meditation, we explore this, we reflect on it, and we just start to see what it really means. Yeah? And maybe what we start to see is that there's actually nothing that I can really say is mine. So, I, I, you know, I think this body is mine, you know. But it isn't really. We just start to see that it's just something that's been borrowed and is being given back. And then I'll borrow something more and give it back. We just start to see that it, actually it's not mine. It's a process in that kind of way. And there's even nothing that I can say is me. You know, I, I have this idea of me in here. But the more you look at it, the more you realise... <coughs> Again, that's just a process of change. Um, everything is just borrowing and giving back in that kind of way. Um, everything has just come from somewhere else, and sooner or later it will be going somewhere else again. So there's just this momentary appearance of things. There's just this dance of the elements. There's just this flow and process of change going on and on and on all the time. 
So in other words, if you kind of follow this meditation practice, if you really kind of go into it, you're led into an experience of selflessness. You're led into an experience of realising that there isn't really anything which is me or mine. Uh, there isn't really a me that's sort of separate from everything else in the kind of middle of all this. Actually, everything is connected. Everything is, um, is part of this flow in that kind of way. And if we're ready for it, we experience this actually as a relief, actually as a liberation, actually which is something expansive. Uh, it's a selflessness which is, yes, expansive. It's a conscious, it's a kind of a, a consciousness which isn't narrowed down, but which is opened out. It's consciousness without a sense of ownership, without a sense of self. Yeah, but it's opened out. It's unbarriered. It's kind of connected to the world around it. And yeah, that feels expansive and liberating. So that's basically my talk. And. Um, yeah, the reason I was saying to Surika was I, I wasn't sure whether it was the talk people were expecting. Was I, I thought maybe people would be expecting me to talk about, you know, Buddhism and ecological crisis and global warming and environmental issues like that. But um, when I started preparing the talk, I realised this was what I wanted to write about. I wanted to take it right back to our relationship with the world, our relationship with nature. And um, because I think a lot of environmental stuff, um, there's a danger that it, it's not really based on a, on a different relationship with the world. Yeah? It still arises out of human self-interest. It still arise out of, arises out of human beings realising that um, if they carry on the way they're going, they're going to make it harder for themselves to live the kind of lives they kind of want. So maybe we better change a few things. But it's not really deeply or profoundly about changing our relationship to the world, changing our relationship to nature. So a truly different kind of relationship to the world around us, I think, comes out of that deeper sense of awareness that, that, that gives rise to that sensitivity, to that sense of empathy and connection with the world. And ultimately from, that, from a sense of non-separateness with the world, from a sense of selflessness, so in other words, it, it comes out of actually feeling differently, actually experiencing yourself and the world differently, and then that informing and inf affecting how you want to interact with the world. So yeah, when I was preparing this talk, I realised I wanted to try and explore that and evoke that in some way, rather than talking about the bigger issues straight off as it were. And, yeah, what I'm talking about isn't a kind of idealised or sentimentalised relationship to the world. Um, you know, it's, it's all very well me talking about not hurting ants when one's on retreat at Cuculoca in Spain. But, you know, what if a load of ants have invaded your kitchen? Yeah, what do you do then? Um, or what if you're a gardener? You know, gar anyone here who's a gardener will know that, um, especially if you're growing things to eat, you know, nature is a battle. You know, if you grow lettuces, either the slugs are going to eat your lettuces or, or you are. You know, it's, it's, it is a battle, yeah? 
um, nature is a kind of struggle for survival amongst the different forms of life. That's that's what it is, you know. Um, you know that's going on on those sort of small scales, and it's going on on a big scale all the time, as it were. So, yes, I'm not talking about some kind of idealised, romantic idea about being in nature. I suppose I'm just talking about having that sense of connection, having that sense of empathy, and trying to move in that direction in our relationship to the world. I suppose trying to come from the values of, of uh, non-harm and non-exploitation. Those are the kind of underlying values, I guess. And it's not like you can live in this life perfectly without causing any harm at all. I don't think you can. But you can definitely come from those values. You can definitely try and act from those values as much as possible. You can try and move in that direction. You can try and think, well, how can I live as harmlessly as possible? Are there ways in which one doesn't need to cause harm? And, and, and just, yeah, just let those, that awareness and that sense of empathy and, and those values inform how you are as much as possible. So, yeah, in a way, that's what I wanted to try and evoke in this talk. Try and try, just encouraging us to develop that awareness. And um, maybe, yes, we can do that partly by being in nature. Maybe by being, particularly by being alone in nature. Uh, just going somewhere, preferably with a, you know, an element of wildness and being there. Just kind of really trying to be there and opening up to what's around us in that kind of way. But even if we can't go somewhere wild like that, we can still experience it in other ways. You know, we're very lucky in England, actually. The English countryside, it sort of has those borderlands. It has those pockets of wildness. Um, it isn't completely kind of agribusiness, the English countryside. So, yes, I think we can still experience an element of that there. And maybe even in the city, you know, the sparrowhawk flying over the rooftops. It's kind of there. We can, tr we can try and experience the world in that kind of way, even in the city, too. So, yeah, that's my talk. Just encouraging us to develop that deeper awareness of the world around us. And, yeah, in a way, that's an important contribution Buddhism can make to these kind of issues because it, it encourages that kind of awareness. It teaches that kind of awareness. It teaches those values of non-harm and non-exploitation. And it also teaches practices, meditation and so on, which actually help people live like that, live a life of deeper awareness of the world. And, yeah, the more we do that, the more we'll actually experience for ourselves those qualities of empathy and connection and selflessness that are yeah, embodied in the very nature of life. Thank you.